is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. And I'm Charles Feldman on the menu for today's show. Possible war crimes committed by the Russians in Ukraine. Ukrainian officials say an airstrike devastated a maternity hospital in the port city of Mariupol. At least 17 people were hurt. We go in-depth into whether Russia and its military can be charged with war crimes. We also will head to Russian-occupied Ukraine, where one woman says the occupation, as she put it, is a bit strange. We have her story. And Vice President Kamala Harris was supposed to head to Poland to thank the country, but instead has gotten involved in the middle of an argument between Poland and the U.S. Pentagon. The economic war with Russia, could it backfire on us? Sanctions, oil bans, high gas prices, could that send us into a recession? Human skin cells could have what it takes to fight off COVID. They're working on this at uh, Cedars. And you and your boss, uh, if you have a boss, probably have different ideas about going back to the office in person. We will talk about that at the end of the show. Yeah, I don't want to go. (laughs) <laughs> Too bad you're already here. Who oh, won yeah, that yeah. fight? You're already yeah, here. I lost. Okay. <laughs> All right. You got a point there, Mike. We start, though, with uh, Vice President Kamala Harris, Poland, and the Pentagon. With us now, again, is journalist Phil Littner, who is in Lviv, uh, Ukraine. Phil, thanks for being with us again. So uh, the vice president uh, was supposed to go to Poland, as we said, for one thing, but she's now in the middle of this dispute between Poland and the Pentagon, and it involves a bunch of uh, vintage uh, MiG fighter jets. So can you tell us what the story is there? Yeah, well, the, the problem here for the Ukrainians is they, they don't, they're trying to make the Russians pay for their air superiority, and by making them pay, hopefully diminish that air superiority. And they, they're, they're saying they just don't have the equipment to do it. Um, the president, uh, Volodymyr uh, Zelensky, has asked for a no-fly zone, but that seems to be a non-starter because that would put NATO uh, troops, uh, uh, forces in the air uh, in a deterrence uh, against Russian uh, air power. And, and, of course, you know, the consequences of that could be, well, they could be pretty catastrophic. So uh, the Ukrainians have said, second to a no-fly zone, we want as much anti-aircraft, or we want these MiGs from Poland. Well, moving MiGs, uh, certainly flying them in from any border uh, region, uh, is going to be problematic. They tried to maybe perhaps send it to Germany and, and then uh, you know fly them out that way so that Poland wouldn't be uh, directly connected. But all of this machinations have fallen apart because at the end of the day, it's been determined, certainly by Washington, and I was just monitoring the Pentagon press briefing today, um, that that's just a non-starter because it would be too provocative. However, the Pentagon does say that they are willing to step up their um, portable systems, their, uh, their man-pad uh, short-range anti-aircraft weapons. Um, the Ukrainians will uh, be happy to get that, but at the end of the day, unless they can stop those jets, those, those are the real problems, um, the, the, the fast-moving jets. They can knock helicopters out of the air, but those fast-moving jets that are used to attack um, any number of targets within Ukraine, and of course, tragically, hearing some of the civilian targets, 
uh, the Ukrainians say uh, it's just not enough. So there's growing frustration with the West here inside Ukraine. Okay, so the Poles were going to give us the jets and they wanted us to give them over. But again, that's a little too close to comfort for the Pentagon because then it looks like we're literally giving these arms. And if one of these um, Ukrainians in a, in a Polish jet shoots down a Russian airplane, then we're uh, too close to that, that NATO line for, for comfort from, from our perspective. So that's from the Pentagon. And then they're also talking today about some of the weapons. Again, more evidence of some of these banned weapons that, that Russia is either using or thinking of using, right? There's a lot of disturbing talk coming out of uh, the Ministry of uh, Defense in Moscow um, and also the Foreign Ministry. They are floating these ideas that there are chemical weapons plants within Ukraine funded by the United States and that they would be using, they would either use that against Russian troops or the accusation is uh, that the Russians have been making is that the Ukrainians would use it against their own people, which shows an alarming sense of cynicism uh, and a clear misunderstanding of, of the people of Ukraine. But the Russian accusation is that they would create a false flag using chemical weapons, blame it on the Russians, and then, of course, the international community would be obligated to come in and this whole thing would be ratcheted up. I must admit, oh, I must note, however, um, that I was, in the, I was in Georgia in 2008 and we heard exactly the same thing. And we heard it again in 2018. This is almost a page that they took from their playbook. You'd think they'd switch it up now and again, but this does seem to be something the Russians like to accuse the countries that they would like to, well, frankly, subjugate and say, well, the Americans are, are, are creating these illegal weapons and we better do something about it first. And then uh, even if it does get used, the Russians tend to say, well, it was all, um, you know, it was all by design. So. Uh, despite those reports coming out of Moscow, very few people think there's any credibility. I, I am curious about one thing, Phil, because uh, as we pointed out, you're in the sort of the western portion of Ukraine, and I know you haven't been able to get around the entire country, but are there Ukrainians that you've encountered who are supportive of the Russians? Oh, absolutely not. No. Um, uh, I, I, you're right. I'm situated in Lviv. Um, I, it's my decision that uh, this is probably the best place I can be because this will allow me to, um, you know, get information from around the country and, and be able to disseminate it. I have a network built over two decades of contacts and people with the, both within the government, and the military, and just uh, Ukrainian civil society. Um, and almost to every Ukrainian I've spoken to, nobody thinks that the, that, that the Russians. Uh, coming in uh, are a good thing. Nobody stands for that, with the possible exception of those two breakaway republics out in the Donbass. But they've seen eight years of war, and they're just happy to see the, uh, the shooting at least decrease or move on to other locations. So, uh, And there are many ethnic Russians out in the, in the far east of this vast country. So the, there has been grumbling. I have heard from out in those breakaway republics that we're just glad the fighting stopped. Thank God the Russians came in and now the fighting has stopped. But that that is a just a rump part of this country. Um, this country is, as we have discussed, uh, Mike and Charles, in the past, uh, this I have never, I've been coming here 21 years, I've never seen this country as united as it is. This is a, this is a country that is just solidified in its, in its determination to fight off this uh, this attack. I've I've seen young, I've seen young men and women going to 
these artists, uh, what were artist unions here in Lviv, which is kind of an artistic town, a very bohemian town, and they're turning all of their canvases into camouflage coverings for, for armed positions. We've got uh, welding locations and car mechanics making um, making uh, tank blockades. Uh, so you know, it, it, this is a this is a nation completely mobilized right. to try and stop the Russians, and I've never seen it like it before. Phil Itner there in Lviv. Phil, thanks for talking to us again. Right now, we head back to Ukraine, where we have been talking to people directly impacted by the war. Sophia lives in southern Ukraine near the Sea of Azov in an area now under Russian occupation. She's staying with her little brother and family right now, trying to make the best of the situation. Sophia, thank you for taking the time to be with us. Um, I think uh, you told our producer that that uh, it's sort of strange. I, I'm not quite sure if that's the word you use, but it was strange the way the Russians are occupying the, the city you're from. Can you explain that? Um, yeah, hi there. Uh, first of all, I'm sorry if I, uh, sorry for my English. I may do a little mistake, so I hope you all understand me. No, you're fine. Uh, okay. So, yeah, thank you. <laughs> well, uh, the fact that um, here in Berdansk, uh, in the first day when the war started, uh, all troops, all territorial defense squads, uh, they were withdrawn from Berdansk. So luckily for it is. Uh, never officially explained why they did this, but many people say that uh, it was done to protect the city from bombing and uh, from civilian deaths. Uh, maybe you've heard uh, in Mariupol, it's near uh, to Berdansk. Uh, it's been horrible there because people are dying uh, only today. Um, they have reported that uh, Russian troops killed about 1,300 of civilians. Uh, and uh, from that point of view, um, um, withdrawing troops from Berdansk was kind of a smart uh, choice. But, um, well, I understand that the priority for Ukraine now is to protect the northern front. So like Kiev, Kharkiv, uh, all the cities in the north. Uh, from Russian troops. Um, so, and on the other hand, when uh, Russian forces occupied the city, uh, well, we saw them. They looked a little um, confused, you know. Um, you know, they uh, they look like they don't really know what they're doing here, why they're here, uh, or like they were expecting to see something else here. I believe, I believe actually... Maybe uh, they thought, they believed their own propaganda, and maybe they thought that we would welcome them here. And, of course, we're not. We don't, we don't want them here. Uh, so, basically, yeah, that, that's quite strange. I actually saw uh, a woman uh, here in Berdansk in a store. Uh, she was shouting to one of Russian troops, and uh, she was saying, um, she asked them to... Um, to give up to, uh, you know, um, to, uh, to, okay, so to, to give up. And, uh, well, this woman, she was unarmed and she was yelling basically to the military, to Russian military. Uh, they looked depressed and they looked confused, but unfortunately they didn't give up yet. So, so what is it like day to day? 
there. We said you're staying with your little brother and your family. Um, yeah. Do you have, is there food? We've heard all these different reports about how hard it is to, to get stuff, you know, a week and a half in now. Can you go outside? Can can you kind of go to the store? You mentioned you were there. Give us yeah. give us what it's like with them around all the time. Uh, well, you know, currently the situation in the city is kind of under control. Uh, local authorities uh, they say that uh, they won't uh, they won't cooperate with Russian troops, but basically uh, troops are controlling most of administrative buildings. Uh, but still, it looks like they have occupied the city, but they don't know what to do next. Um, well, for now, we do not see them uh, doing something, uh, setting their administration over here. Uh, a couple of days ago, uh, Russians blew up uh, a gas pipeline, uh, Mariupol Berdyansk gas pipeline. So basically, uh, we are uh, we are uh, now without gas or any heating. But you can go to stores, and uh, well, unfortunately, uh, Russian troops they do not allow any Ukrainian humanitarian convoys, uh, any humanitarian aid into the city uh, that carry important food, uh, medicine, other essential provisions. And instead, they are bringing their humanitarian convoys from temporary occupied Crimea to film propaganda stories for Russian TV. They want to show uh, to Russians that people here in Berdyansk and southern regions that they are happy with Russian government. And to uh, prevent such videos, to prevent these fakes, people here in, Be- in Berdyansk, uh, we go to peaceful protests with Ukrainian flags every day. We sing Ukrainian national anthem. We tell Russians uh, that we don't want them here. We ask them to leave the city, to uh, get out. And, uh, well, as I say, as I said, uh, I believe this uh, rally, is this uh, protest, they uh, are quite confusing for Russian military. Right. Sophia, let, let me. Well, I'm curious. First of all, what do you do in in Ukraine before the war began? That is. Um, well, I was. Uh, I actually lived in Kiev for six years. I uh, uh, I worked there. I have. Uh, I've studied there um, for four years, and then. Uh, uh, I worked there for two years, uh, but uh, before the war started, just the day before the war started, I was feeling that something is coming. And um, as my family live in Berdyansk, I just wanted to see them. I wanted to come here and uh, check if everything is okay. Uh, I was really worried uh, to be alone in Kiev, and I wanted to see my family, so I uh, I, uh, I went back here. All right, so, so just I, the I, day before. I'm also curious, Sophia, you had mentioned before that you were in a store, near a store, and there was a woman there, a Ukrainian woman who was yelling, I think you said, at uh, one of the yep. Russian soldiers. Uh, have you had any communication with any of the occupying Russians? Uh, I, I, I presume you speak um, Russian, yes or no? Uh, yeah, I speak Russian, but um, what, the only communication I had with them was at the checkpoint when we entered the city we actually um me and my family um we moved to uh our friends for two days when the war started and then we came back to Berdyansk uh 
and we went back the day was occupied. It was at the end of February, I guess, February 27, 28. And uh, we saw Russian equipment uh, and we saw Russian troops. Uh, they have checked our card. Uh, they didn't ask for any documents. We just said that we were returning home. And they said, oh, yeah, OK, we, you can go. So basically, that was uh, that was it. Uh, as I as I'm aware, they're not communicating with any uh, civilians. Uh, they're just trying to, um, um, well, they're trying to pursue our local administrations to give up the city and to cooperate with them. How crazy is it to you that, that some of them do yeah. seem? confused that they do believe their own propaganda that they thought they were coming yeah, in to, yeah, to, to free you guys from something they are uh, absolutely i mean uh you you know uh it's crazy because uh i don't know if you have seen the videos where russian prisoners of war call their mothers these are young guys like 18, 19, 20 years old, and they, they tell their mothers that they're in captivity, that their friends have died in battle in Ukraine, that they uh, were uh, commanded to kill civilians in a foreign country. And they ask their mothers to do something. They ask them to go to protest, to ask Putin to stop this. And their mothers, <laughs> they do not believe them. They just they just say, well, what am I to do with it? What can I do? I don't want to, I, I can't do anything. And uh, as far as I know, more than 12,000 of Russian uh, uh, servicemen have already died in Ukraine. And Russia do not even want to take back their bodies. And this is the first case in the history, I think. And uh, it, it says more than it needs to, that, that needs to be said about Russia. Sophia, uh, how, let me interrupt yeah. for a second. Uh, I'm curious also, how you said you're staying with your little brother. How old are you? How old yeah. is your little brother? Uh, I'm 23. My little brother is 15. Um, we are staying here with uh, our stepmom. And uh, my dad uh, is in army right now. Okay, so so tell us a little bit about the emotional toll that this must be taking. I mean, you're only 23 years old. That's pretty young. Your brother is even younger. And only two weeks ago, you were living in a peaceful country. Now yeah. you're living in a in a city that's occupied by the Russian army. That must be an enormous drain on on both of you and your entire family, for that matter emotionally as well as physically well uh of course it's it's pretty hard it's pretty confusing we don't know what's uh what's going to be uh, next or what's going to happen but uh we are strongly convinced that we're going to win ukraine is going to win we know it for sure because we uh we are sure that russia is going to lose it's uh it's just how it should be uh that's um uh, yeah that's for starters and uh basically you know we've been in war with russia for eight years now actually it it hasn't it, it didn't start uh on february 24th russia has occupied crimea and our southern regions eight years ago and uh we um we knew it's coming we were hoping that I don't know, the authorities in Russia would change, the, the, that Putin would uh, lose election or 
something else would happen. We we all, of course, hoped for the best, but we were prepare, preparing for this. We were feeling they, uh, Russia, I mean, they are convinced to destroy Ukraine as a country. And therefore, we knew it's coming. And now we are united as never. We uh, all of, uh, I uh, constantly speaking to my friends uh, from around Ukraine, and I see them helping, doing their best, uh, joining territorial defense or volunteering or trying to uh, help uh, people with a um, uh, with a house and so on. So um, that's why it, that's that is what uh, holding us together. That's what. Uh, keep us going. Yeah, and that's the sense we get from everybody we we talk to. Sophia, thank you. Thank you so much for talking to us. Uh, She's there in southern Ukraine near the the Sea of Azov in an area now under Russian occupation. Sophia, we hope we can uh, keep in touch with you, and thanks again. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. More accusations of war crimes following what Ukrainian officials say was his airstrike on a maternity ward at a hospital in the port city of Maripol, trapping children and others under the rubble. Ukraine's president calling this an atrocity with us now to discuss Russia and potential war crimes is David Schaffer, a senior fellow with the Council on Foreign Relations and former U.S. ambassador at large for war crimes issues. David, thanks for being with us. Uh, It would seem uh, to, I guess, any, I don't know, uh, logical thinking human being that what the Russians are doing would be a war crime, but I suppose there are very technical legal terms and, and a litmus test that has to be passed for something to be considered a war crime? Well, sometimes logic and common sense actually prevail as the right answer. Uh, What is taking place in Ukraine is so self-evident in terms of a daily barrage of criminal conduct by the Russian military. And we know that that conduct reaches all the way to the top to Vladimir Putin. There's no misunderstanding here about command responsibility. Uh, That is very evident in this case. So that being said, obviously, when one tries to investigate and draw up indictments against um, alleged war criminals, one has to be extremely precise and demonstrate to the court that uh, the, uh, the targeting of civilians and of civilian structures such as hospitals Um, first of all, occurred, and then secondly, occurred through some sort of command structure that directed such targeting. Now, sometimes there's a defense in war crimes cases that this was an errant missile or a mistaken application of artillery shelling, that there was no intention to hit the civilian population. But the circumstances of Ukraine are so obvious that these, this shelling is hitting a massive amount of strictly civilian structures, obviously with civilians inside, as well as civilians who are simply trying to escape along you know, quarter routes within cities uh, to escape all the shelling, and yet they still get shelled. I think that's going to be a very difficult defense to raise. And let me just add one 
kind of interesting wrinkle for Ukraine. This is a war of aggression. Um, so you have on top of your classic war crimes and crimes against humanity calculations and investigations, the fact that all of this has been unleashed under the umbrella of a war of aggression, which is illegal. So for a military commander to then say, oh, yes, I invaded Ukraine illegally. I mean, let's accept that argument that I invaded it illegally, but I, I still have the right to engage in combat with all of these weapons and just blow civilian uh, neighborhoods apart. And you have to prove that I was not making a mistake in doing so kind of defies the logic of what a war of aggression unleashes. In other words, you shouldn't be firing any of these munitions at all because you started it under a war of aggression. So there's the case. What do you do with it if the aggressors don't care? Well, in this case, they do not appear to care, which is not going to be very good for their defense. Um, the International Criminal Court has jurisdiction to investigate Ukraine and this war of aggression and the other atrocity crimes. 39 state parties of the International Criminal Court referred Ukraine in an unprecedented step to the ICC prosecutor for investigation um, earlier this week uh, or late last week. And so um, that means that there will be, and there is now, an official investigation of all of this with very talented expert investigators and a very talented prosecution team in The Hague, they can arrive at indictments, which will not be, uh, in, uh, they won't be impossible with respect to the leadership, which is sometimes very difficult in war crimes because you have to work up the chain and sort of prove that a leader who didn't write anything down or say anything actually was responsible for unleashing the hell on earth. In this case, we know that Putin unleashed hell on earth. Uh, he says it publicly. He incriminates himself every day. He leaves footprints everywhere. If he is indicted, then I would argue, and his generals, I would argue that the sanctions regime, which has been severely imposed upon Russia, will not be lifted unless two things at least occur. One, the territorial integrity and sovereignty of Ukraine is restored with the withdrawal of Russian forces. That's basic. And second, they will not be uh, released in total, at least, until there is a surrender of indicted fugitives from justice to The Hague. And that means that there will be internal pressure to depose Putin and the generals, get them out of the way, they're toxic, they're pariah, and let Russia recover as a society from their misbegotten leadership. This is what happened in Serbia after the Balkans War. They got rid of Milosevic, who was indicted sent them to the Hague, and then they started to recover. So I, I would expect that that will happen with Russia. It's implausible to think that the sanctions will be lifted without the surrender of these individuals to justice. David Sheffer, senior fellow with the Council on Foreign Relations, a former ambassador at large for war crimes issues. Oh, it's getting hot, the economic war between Russia and the West. This after President Biden banned Russian oil imports. The goal of this, and sanctions, of course, 
is to cripple Russia's economy and force Vladimir Putin into stopping the war in Ukraine. Could it backfire on us? Gas prices shooting up. It's going to have a ripple effect throughout the economy. Could we be moving into a recession? Milton Ezradi, chief economist invested, also author of the book 30 Tomorrows, the next three decades of globalization, demographics, and how we will live. Thanks for being here. So I saw a headline today, war fallout, U.S. economy to slow, Europe risks recession, Russia to suffer double-digit declines. Uh, but what's to say that we don't also see the R word here? Uh, we could. Um, I think the, um, uh, the the pressure is not so much this this last gesture of cutting off Russian oil imports. They're very small for the United States, uh, but we have effectively pushed Russian oil uh, off world markets. I know there's a there's a carve out within SWIFT for them to continue to sell oil. That's being done for Europe's sake, not ours. Um, but uh, the Russian oil is not moving. The carriers will not carry it. The insurers will not insure it. So it is as if the world has banned Russian oil. This is going to go harder on Europe than us. But if the world goes into recession, we will. Uh, there's also the chance that the Federal Reserve is going to start raising rates to deal with the inflation. And that also contributes to recessionary pressures. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, it, it... Does the Fed now find itself in a bind because before this war in Ukraine, uh, as you know, and as they said, they were intending to raise interest rates because of inflation that was brought about by a resurgence of, of trade, I suppose, after the pandemic started to, to wane, at least in the Western part of the world. Uh, but now that we've got this war going on, uh, might their solution to one problem cause a different one? Well, yes, it's a very uh, a tightrope the Fed has to walk here. They can't not act because the inflation was more fundamental than just the war. If it was just the war, they could say we're going to weather this thing until we get Putin to back down and so forth. But the inflation was much more fundamental. It was even more fundamental than supply chains because we have printed enough money to float uh, an entire navy. Uh, so there was there was this pressure. The Fed has to deal with this. But if they go too fast, they're going to precipitate a recession. So they're walking a very fine line here. They're going to make their first announcements later this month. We'll see how they're handling it. They could easily screw up. Does it help that we still have they could easily screw up? Does it help that we still have some post pandemic yearning to spend, at least among some people? But then again, if you can't afford anything or you can't find something, then it doesn't matter if you want to spend your money. Well, I think the supply chain problems, except for this oil issue with the war, the supply chain problems were beginning to dissipate. So the idea of finding what you wanted was becoming less of a problem. But as I said, the inflation was there before uh, we did anything with this fighting with our sanctions. And the Fed will have to act in some way to quell that. Otherwise, it's going to get built into the economy and we're going to have a lot more trouble in the long run. As far as the recession is concerned, I don't think we are facing anything imminent in this respect, even with the cutoff in oil, um, because there is some of this momentum in the economy, this post-pandemic recovery. Yes, a lot of the money has been eaten up by inflation, but I think that'll carry us through to the end of the year and into 2023. But after that, a lot depends on the Fed and a lot depends on how soon we can resolve this situation in Europe. You know, Mike and I were, were chuckling. You may have heard when you when you sort of said um, 
that the Fed could screw it up. And and that actually leads to the question, you know, people tend to think that these people on at the Federal Reserve, that they're all these sort of, I don't know, geniuses, and they, they know exactly what to do to steer the country. But historically, as you know, the Fed has often screwed things up. So how could we be confident that these people really know what they're doing? Uh, we can't. Um, That's I very mean, comforting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um they, they're, they're, they're some of the best in the world, and I'm not taking away from them, but there's only so much that can be done. And the Fed, uh, if it moves too slowly, the inflation gets embedded in the economy. If it moves too fast, it precipitates a recession. So it's like breaking on ice. Of course, you're in L.A. You don't know much about that. It's like breaking on ice. You press too hard and you skid out of control. You press too softly and you don't stop. So the Fed, the Fed has a very difficult job here. They may be the best in the world. Uh, they're better than I am. But that doesn't mean that they can't screw up. They have in the past. We're just crossing our fingers here and hoping for the best, which is <laughs> what we always do, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, at, at least Jay Powell is aware of the problem. Three months ago, he wasn't. So that's encouraging. All right. Milton Ezrati, chief economist at uh, Vested, also author of the book 30 Tomorrows, Next Three Decades of Globalization, Demographics, and How We Will Live. He says that being in L.A., we're not aware of ice, a man who has never been in our building. (laughs) Help us. (laughs) Turn on the heater. All right. More in-depth is on the way. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Scientists here in L.A. working on a new COVID therapy made from um, re-engineered human skin cells. Hmm. Researchers at Cedars-Sinai re-engineered the cells and found a way to fight off the virus. With us is study first author Dr. Ahmed Ibrahim, assistant professor in the Smith Heart Institute at Cedars-Sinai. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So what exactly is, is this a, a proposed therapy? I, I suspect. Uh, how would it be delivered to the patient? Uh, thank you. And thank you, Mike and Charles, for having me. Um, so the, the results are still preliminary. So most of the, the observations that we made regarding the, the antiviral and sort of cell protective effects of this therapeutic has been done in a dish, in cells in a dish. And so more, more studies would have to be done to understand potentially what the uh, best way to administer this medication in, uh, in a patient would be. Um, if I had to guess, it would probably intravenous, uh, be an IV injection. Um, but, you know, this is somewhat preliminary in, in, in nature. Okay, so work in progress. So let's stick to the dish. What does it do to the COVID in the dish? Does it kill it? Does it stop it? Does it help the cells that are infected somehow? What are we talking about? Yeah, so the way that uh, viral infections work, uh, you know, like SARS-CoV-2, um, is that they in, they enter the cell and then they hijack the cell's machinery to turn them into these uh, virus factories. Um, and then the immune system detects that infection and then mounts a very strong inflammatory response and in, in the ensuing uh, you know uh, infection a lot of tissue uh, dies and becomes damaged and 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 this is what ultimately causes death uh, what we observed in the dish is that uh, not only was this therapeutic capable of protecting cells from the damage and death that comes from inflammation but also prevented the virus's ability to hijack the cells and make more of itself so it's sort of a two-pronged approach 
Why human skin cells? I mean, it, it wouldn't, to the layperson, be something that would come to mind. So what is it that is special about human skin cells that once re-engineered seems to be effective in uh, combating the SARS-CoV-2 virus? Yeah, that's a that's a, an important question. So let me backtrack a little bit to just cover some of the background of how we got to skin cells as as the starting material. So um, my study, my research focuses regenerative medicine, and regenerative medicine focuses mainly on cell therapeutics. So these are cells, special cells that have the ability to repair tissue uh, after damage. And the particular stem cell type that I've been working on comes from the adult uh, heart, and we call those CDCs. And for a long time, we've been studying what about what genetic features in these cells endow them with the ability to repair uh, injured tissue. And uh, in 2019, we published a study where we were able to describe what these genetic features are. So then we took those and engineered them in skin cells for a number of reasons. Number one is skin cells are known not to be therapeutic because that's, you know, they're the, they're the, um, the cells that are widely known not to be therapeutically functional. And so having those genetic features in those skin cells validated the idea that we reverse engineering the uh, therapeutic uh, capability of a therapeutic cell in a non-therapeutic cell. That's the first point. The second point is skin cells are widely available. And so if we ever needed to uh, scale up the production of this platform as a therapeutic, skin cells are much more widely available than the cardiac cells that we uh, have initially um, used. Now, um, the other detail that's important is that these cells function by secreting nanoparticles that is the therapeutic itself and which is the topic of the paper. So these are called EVs. These are very small nanoparticles that contain the signals that is uptaken uh, and absorbed by the injured tissue to then be able to repair itself and reduce the effects of damaging inflammation. All right, that's Dr. Ahmed Ibrahim, assistant professor the Smith Heart Institute over at uh, Cedars, working on this. Doctor, thanks. Well, many bosses out there are getting anxious to head back to the office, but workers, no. Survey done by the Future Forum last year found three-quarters of all the execs. They say they want to work from the office three to five days a week, compared with about one-third of employees. Why the disconnect? Arch Markman, professor of psychology and marketing at the University of Texas, wrote an essay in the Harvard Business Review about this. Art, thanks for being here. So uh, are you surprised, first of all, by the number being so low among the employees for even the three to five? Because we've done stories about this before. It's kind of been a push to at least get the three to five among some groups of people saying, you know what, I'd be okay with going in as long as I can still stay home on Thursdays or Fridays. Yeah, I, it's a great question. I think that that a lot of employees are really feeling actually, you know, we, we just came in after the traffic report. And, and one of the beauties of working from home is you don't spend 45 minutes, an hour, hour and 15 minutes each way in traffic. And people are noticing the, the value of that extra time in their lives. And when faced with the prospect of having to start doing that again, um, they're then they're balking at that. And so, no, I'm not surprised that the numbers are that low. Okay, so here you've got this situation where the bosses want the employees to come back. The employers are going, eh, we're not that hurry to come back to the office. We can do our job at home. Who's going to win this one? (laughs) Well, you know, it's it's an interesting question. Right now, with the job market as hot as it is, the employees have the upper hand. 
because it's just it's you know people have a lot of choice and and if if a firm says you know what you can come work for us and stay at home that's going to be very attractive for a lot of people but it's going to be attractive in the short term i think i think what one of the problems is a lot of people who want to stay at home the benefits of actually going into work and working with other people are really much more obvious over time than they are in the moment. Because in the moment, you just think, I got to commute and I don't want to do that. What you're missing is the opportunity to have some face time with your boss, which might actually help you to enhance your career and maybe get promoted. You're missing the opportunity to engage with your colleagues a little bit more and work more effectively. You're missing that opportunity to have a quick conversation with a colleague instead of 12 emails that have to go back and forth. So all of those things, plus it's really hard to learn the culture of a company you're working for. And with so many people changing jobs right now, uh, you've got a lot of people who are being onboarded remotely. And these people are having trouble learning what it's like to work at the company that they've moved to because they can't just watch the way that people are working. They have to they have to ask a lot of questions and they often don't even know what to ask because they're not seeing other people's behavior. So the long run actually favors working back in the office, but it's going to be a, a real uh, struggle to get there. Yeah, I was going to say, those all seem to me like things that a boss would say to try and get people. <laughs> and those are all things that we've heard. I mean, Tim Cook's been doing the creativity thing for Apple, yeah. right? And yep. uh, some of the other CEOs have said, no, it's productivity, but then the workers push back. And I say, I don't know, we're still making money and I'm at home, so what's the deal? But then we have the president even saying, get back into downtown so all the restaurants and cafes and stuff can make some money off you guys, because that's how this is supposed to work. <laughs> Well, we certainly structured the workplace around everybody being there. But I, I do think that there are some concessions that we can make. So, for example, it really doesn't have to be the case that everyone shows up to work between eight and nine in the morning and leaves between four and six in the evening. And if we stagger that workday out a little bit more so that the traffic isn't quite as horrible as it was and that we can be a little bit more flexible when people have to deal with childcare issues or visiting a kid's school or whatever it is. I think by incorporating a little bit more of that flexibility, we can get people back into the workplace enough to begin to remember some of the benefits of being around other human beings again. But there's also the, 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 the benefits, but also people will start to remember the things that weren't so good about being around all those people. Like, take Mike and me. I, we're in the same studio. But if I never see him again for the rest of my life, I'm fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> Careful as you wish. <laughs> I'm perfectly fine with it. No, no. But, 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 but to my point, uh, yeah, I mean, there are things that people will regret and, and say, gee, it would be nice to be able to meet so-and-so at the water cooler if offices still have water coolers. But there are also the bad things. I mean, people in offices sometimes don't like one another and they kind of they like the fact that they don't have to see these people maybe ever again. <laughs> Well, it, it's true. But, you know, it, it again, I think that 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 not engaging in those interactions has a lot of consequences that you don't notice in the moment, but have their effect over the long term. There's a lot of work in in on in theories of social networks that talks about what they call weak ties and weak ties are those people you don't see very often, but they connect you to a whole other neighborhood of people. And in, in, in the current environment at work with people working remotely, you don't bump into those weak ties very often. You bump into what you could think of as your strong ties, the people who are solidly part of your team. You have a bunch of Zoom meetings, you're on Slack with them, whatever. 
but you're not having that hap happenstance bump into somebody in the parking lot or the elevator and, and being reconnected to things that are happening somewhere else in the organization that then might lead to a great idea or more importantly, might lead you to have an interaction that enhances your own career in certain ways. And part of the problem is you don't notice the things that don't happen to you. You know, it's it's the, the 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 possible world that doesn't happen is of course invisible to us because it didn't happen. But but being around people creates a vast number of opportunities that that actually help people's careers. And if you talk to people, and I've I've done this because I, I did a book called Bring Your Brain to Work. I interviewed a bunch of people. When you ask people about their career story, the stories often involve these these moments that that were innocuous at the time, but turned out to have an incredible impact on the path of somebody's career because they happened to bump into somebody, they happened to hear an idea, they happened to be included in a meeting, and that changed everything. That's uh, Arch Markman, professor of psychology and marketing, University of Texas. And uh, check out the book or go read the essay, The Harvard Business Review, about going back to work. I was joking about you. Yeah, well, when I finally walk out of here, you'll never hear from me again. <laughs> Slam. Uh, <laughs> All right, that's the show for today. We'll be back tomorrow.